If you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. This morning, it is my great desire to encourage each of our hearts by remembering and thinking on the work that we've been set apart for. We live in a time where it's so very easy to be discouraged. And just the smallest survey of the news and the current culture that we find ourselves in is enough to lose focus and easily be ruled by our flesh. Just for an example, not as if we all need it, but just for an example, in the last few weeks, some of the headlines that have grabbed my attention are as follows. These are just the headlines. Washington House passes bill allowing no parental notification of runaways if the child is seeking abortion or sex change. Here's one. Widow barred from adopting foster kids over Christian beliefs. And now she's fighting back. Well, This one I just have to say, in the talking points on this, the verbiage that they're most concerned about, they think could be used against Christians, especially Christian parents, to take away our children. Another headline said, a poll finds human trafficking is the top concern in the border crisis. And another says, Planned Parenthood aborted nearly 375,000 unborn children last year. Here's one close to home. DOJ sues Tennessee to reverse ban on trans treatments for minors. And there were two other headlines that were so gruesome, I had them written and my wife assured me, do not read those, and I agree, that's not a good idea. The point is, as we think about the world, these things can be scary. And because we're naturally inclined to want to be in control, we tend to feel fear when it becomes very obvious that we're not in control. The temperature around us in the world is it's getting hotter. It seems like, wouldn't you agree, that it's worse than it ever has been before. I think there's a temptation to feel that way. But in fact, it's, it's just that the veil's been lifted. We see now what's been there all along. And now it's very popular to show off the depths of the depravity in the unregenerate. This reminds me, this isn't a new circumstance. This isn't new. Ever since sin entered the world, the same outward displays of the inward corruption have been around. And oddly, I think this should bring us comfort because God in his word has made it clear that this is not new. This isn't catching God by surprise. Well, in their book uh, on biblical doctrine, John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew Uh, point out a couple of interesting facts about this issue and for the sake of time, please just read along with me. I hope we have that. 
I'm going to wait for it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Okay, check this out. Of the Bible's 66 books and 1,189 chapters, only two books and four chapters do not mention sin or sinners. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 stand alone as a unique as unique chapters that rehearse the creation before sin and the new heaven and the new earth, which will never be infected by sin. The rest of the Bible from Genesis 3.1 to Revelation 20.15 bounds with the themes of human sin and the need for salvation. And they say, sin is a major doctrine. In the same book, in the same subject, talking about the origin of sin and speaking specifically about Satan, they have this to say. The Bible lays the blame for sin and death in the world on the first man, Adam, Romans 5.12. Yet in Genesis 3 and its account of man's fall, a dark spiritual figure lurks with evil intentions. This creature tempted God's image bearers and cast doubt on what God had told them. He enticed them to interpret the world from his perspective, not God's. And though this creature was a literal serpent, Genesis 3.1, the force behind the snake was fallen, was the fallen angel uh, Lucifer, now, now known to us as Satan, which means adversary. Genesis does not describe Satan's fall, but the chief demon arrives in Genesis 3 as a fallen being fiercely opposed to God. The fall of Satan is probably being referred to in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Both passages speak of human kings of Tyre and Babylon, yet what is depicted goes far beyond any human monarch. Rather, both passages describe the first sin in the cosmos. Ezekiel 28:13 says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. We are told that Satan was an anointed guardian cherub on the holy mountain of God, Ezekiel 28, 14. The reference to cherub means that Satan was an angel in God's presence. Ezekiel 28, 15 then states, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So Satan went from blameless to unrighteousness. God is not the chargeable cause of unrighteousness. Unrighteousness was found in Satan. The blame lies with him. Isaiah 14, 14 says that the desire to be like God, the most high, was the reason for this angelic worship leader's rebellion. Isaiah 14, 11 through 12. And then, of course, we read in 1 John 3, 8, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 1 Peter 5.8 says, The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. And in Ephesians 6, it helps us define kind of this battleground that we're in, and it says we're at war. But finally it says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces and wickedness in the heavenly places. So again, this is not new. Satan tempted Adam and Eve with a lie that they could be God. Now, he leads the rebellion that were, if it not for grace, we would be following right along in hopes of being our own gods. 
Well, just to further the point that this is not new, sometime just less than 2,000 years ago, God, through Paul, tells us and affirms to the early church this same thing. Look at Romans 1 with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their woman exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of, the, of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's 2,000 years ago. That sounds like today. It's not new. See, we need to remember that the wickedness in our culture and the sobering reality of the sinfulness of man is as old as time. This is even promised to us to be in the church. You might remember uh, when Satan tear, uh, sows tares amongst the wheat. Look at 2 Timothy 3. It says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will even come. We understand. He's talking about the church. For men in the church will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Well, again, it feels weird to say this, but this is so comforting. Uh, his word tells us what the problem is and where it came from, and that it's not a new problem. It's comforting because we're reminded that God is and he always has been in control. It's not as if he's in heaven looking for the steering wheel of the world. Well, I, I really hope and I would imagine that we're all just kind of thinking, well, duh, I know this. Good. That's good. 
But my concern is though that we know the heart of the problem, our response is too easily impacted by fleshly instinct. At least it can be. Let me give you an example. This is Andy. He's precious. I mean, he is precious. And I really like this kid. And I could tell you a lot of things about him that would make your heart melt. There's just so much. Of course, he's our baby, so, you know, we could just go on forever. One little example that I will give you is, I'll set the scene. You can imagine. It's morning time. I'm getting ready for work. His brothers are up. Everyone's up. We're about to start school. And maybe his oldest brother, Davey, is about to go to work. And uh, Andy's coined a phrase that I like so much. It's so precious to all of us. We're all using it now. Feel free to take it with you. Um, but he'll say to Davey, goodbye, Davey. I love you. And he'll say, you're all mine. I love it. It's so sweet. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, this picture really says a thousand words. <laughs> it, really, it really does display a heart attitude that's filled with sin and selfishness. That want, He wants to be his own God. In this moment, he was expressing that to me. And a lot of times I think he'd like to be his, mother, his mother's God too. But um, like me, I think you see this picture and you think he's really cute. And if you care about him, which I'll bet a lot of you do already, in a moment like this, you know what he needs. You know that he needs to be taught. You know that he does have sin in his heart. Um, you know that he needs to be helped along and you understand what's inside him. And perhaps, like me, you, you're praying that you could be used by God in Andy's life to, to help him see his sin that's in there and his need for a savior. But if I look at this picture, I feel differently. I mean, this is a man who has become famous for identifying as a woman. I feel differently when I look at that picture. Perhaps I'm afraid or perhaps I'm disgusted. Now, my inner lawyer, he's good. So he's already jumped up and he's like, well, objection. This is, this is loving the thing God loves and hating the thing God hates. This is an abomination. Agreed. However, this internal argument and the difficult social situations like this that we're finding ourselves in more and more, this is what brings me to our text this morning in Ephesians 2. I want to encourage our hearts by looking at the good work that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in. He prepared these works beforehand that we should walk in them. But to get a running start and to help us with our perspective, remembering where we've come from, let's start all the way back in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. So please read along with me. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So I want to talk about work. And I want to encourage and be encouraged by looking at our work. A few weeks ago, our brother Jesse uh, uh, was able to bring a message in our Sunday school class about work in general. Uh, In the study of Genesis that we're doing, it made sense. It came right up in there. And he did such a fantastic job of talking about work in a general fashion. And so if you haven't heard it, oh, I would encourage you to go back and take it on. Today, though, I just want to look at work from a couple of very specific ways. Uh, First, our internal work, the work that we must do so that we're able to do the external work that we've been prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So, number one, internal works. Before we look at those aspects of our work, there's one little thing that I need to do to make a distinction, to kind of help us clearly define what our work is. We need to look at one thing that is not our work, okay? So if we just go right back to verse 8 and 9, what we've just read, it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith in Christ and the salvation that accompanies is not our work. God alone saves. This is wonderful because we were dead spiritually and we each know that. We remember. We remember being converted from death to life, right? You remember what Colossians 1.21 says. And though, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, you remember, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body and through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And similarly in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, it says, when you were dead in your sins or your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So as we look at the work that we're here to do, this is not our work. We did not save ourselves, and we cannot save anyone else. This is a good time, okay? Everybody shake it off. It's a good time for us to, as a group, just take a huge sigh of relief. Good, yeah, that's not our work. But we do have some serious work to do, and at times, the work feels impossible. And I would submit on our own that it is. But we have hope. We are not on our own. So quickly, 
Let's just look at this. John 16, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, but he's talking to us too. And he says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, no, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you, are no, and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And look at John 15. When the helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. And then in John 14, look at this, same thing. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Look at that. If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. We love him, think of it, because he first loved us right? John, 1 John chapter 2 says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God or love for God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You see the connection here? Love for God is a fruit of the Spirit. When we love Him, it's fruit of the Spirit. And keeping His Word is connected to abiding in Him. Look at John 15. This is beautiful. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. And he who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus has just made it so clear that if we keep his commandments, if we're doers of his word and we trust and obey, then we'll be controlled or helped by the Spirit to bear fruit. And for sure, we'll have great joy when we abide in Him. Uh, Psalm 16 says, in His presence is the fullness of joy. We'll also prove to be His disciples. We'll glorify the Father. We'll ask for the right things. And we'll abide in His love. Think about that. Love, joy. This is fruit of the Spirit. 
when we keep his commandments, when we abide in him, or another way to say this is when we're controlled by the spirit, this is the most important work that we can do. Listen to John MacArthur on this subject. This is so helpful to me. He says, in his, uh, this is a commentary on Ephesians. He says, be filled translates the, passive, the present passive imperative of the Greek word plerao. And it's more literally rendered as be being kept filled. It's a command that includes the idea of a conscious continuation. Being filled with the Spirit, he says, is not an option for believers, but a mandate. He says, no Christian can fulfill God's will for his life apart from being filled with the Spirit. Listen to this. If we do not obey this command, we cannot obey any other command. Simply because we cannot do any of God's will apart from God's Spirit. And outside of the command for unbelievers to trust in Christ for salvation, there's no more practical and necessary command in Scripture than for believers to be filled with the Spirit. In the same chapter of the same book, just a little later on the same point, but to further it, he says this, so helpful. Although every Christian is indwelt, baptized, and sealed by the Spirit, unless he's also filled with the Spirit, he will live in spiritual weakness, retardation, frustration, and defeat. I, I really hope that everyone in here is constantly being filled, be being kept filled with the Spirit. I'll just tell you, this is a struggle. It's a fight. And if you got it locked down, I need you to encourage me constantly towards this. This is where we are at war. And if we fight here first, to be being kept filled with the Spirit, then we will be moved to say and do and be all that he wants us to say, do, and be. And quite frankly, love, which is a fruit of the Spirit, love for everyone in our mission field will then naturally be hanging off the tree of our life. It's imperative. So this is our work. This is the heart of our work. We can't do it on our own. And if we try, the quality of our work will be worthless. Think on 1 Corinthians chapter 3 with me. He says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day it will show, uh, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If we're being controlled by the Spirit, we'll have right motives and proper conduct and effective service. It will make our work have eternal value. These are the good materials to build with, gold, silver, and precious stones. This is to be filled with the Spirit. If not, our works will be burned up. They'll have no value. Wood, hay, straw. But as we abide in Him, as we are controlled by his spirit, as we have the word richly dwelling in us and we're surrendering to that moment by moment and thought by thought, then what will happen? Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you new desires. Commit your way to the Lord and he will do this. He'll make your righteousness shine like the sun, like the noonday sun. This isn't a gospel 
of a Jesus who is a means to an end. This is a gospel of redemption, of what was lost in the garden, a creator who delights in us, who, who wants a relationship with us. He's redeemed that part that was lost, and he wants us to delight in him. And as we do, he gives us new desires. And we live as we are intended to bring glory to Jesus. So that's important that we would do this work to delight ourselves in him. He is our treasure. Once we've done that, that brings us to our second point, our external works. We read this morning in 2 Corinthians 5. I want to look a little closer at that. It's beautiful to us. He says in 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling to the world, uh, the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us or to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ and as though uh, God, this is amazing, we're making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. He made him to knew, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, like it says, we're ambassadors for Christ. And I love that, as though God were making an appeal through us. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My work is his work. Our work is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're to tell people that God is holy and that we're full of sin. And that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Well, okay. You know, while we're doing this amazing thing, God calls and he draws and even begs through us and urges unbelievers to repent and follow Jesus. What occurs to me, most of us here have a job. Um, we all go to work, and if I say, hey, what do you do for work? We'll start to talk about the place that we go, the tasks that we do, um, I think it's easy for us to maybe compartmentalize a little, but what happens is I think that our work, wherever we go and the places that we go, this is just a vehicle to our greater work, the bigger work that we have. It's a, it's a means to an end to get to the place that we do, one of the places we do our greater work. So I think whatever we do for work is very important. We need to do it as unto the Lord, especially if there's any bridge builders in here, please do good work. Um, but whatever, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we need to do all to the glory of God, right? But I would submit that the people we work for and the people we work with and the people we work around, that this is the main point of our work. These people are eternal. They're gonna go on forever. 
Like I said, a lot of times what happens is we compartmentalize our lives, though. Well, I worship over here, and I work over here. But we're not our own. We've been bought with a price, and not just part of our life. Our whole life is his. I think it's easy to think of missions and missionaries as people that go far away, that they're in a foreign land and, and they've been sent, been called to go. But if we belong to Christ, if we've been born again, we're missionaries. And, and while we may be sent to somewhere far away, that would be wonderful. Uh, it really doesn't, it really doesn't matter because wherever we are today is our mission field. So we're building relationships. We're building relationships where the gospel can be shared more and more over time. I, I know that we all know this, but think of relationships as a bridge. Um, the bigger the bridge, the more truth can be traded over time. Think of if you live on an island and there's a mainland, but there's no way to get to each other, that would be pretty rough. But then if all of a sudden you have a bridge, even if it's a small one, you can trade some things back and forth, and that would be very helpful. Well, in the same way, we've got people all around us, and the relationship is a bridge. And the more fortified and the more structure we can put on it, the more truth that can be traded on it. Maybe I just met you. It's a five-pound bridge. I might not get to be able to put much on there without breaking that bridge. But over time, like with our children, with other people that are in our lives for long periods of time, we can, we can build and fortify the superstructure where we can trade more and more truth. Does that make sense? I remember relationships that have had an impact on my life. I'm sure you do, too. And actually, in this room, there's a lot of people who had a lot of impact in my life before I was a Christian. But I remember specifically in one case, it was a long-term relationship where the love was so observable over a long period of time. And I trusted the person as they spoke to me simply. I remember what they said. There's one conversation that's changed my life forever. It was... If, if we don't understand the holiness of God, we can't understand our sinfulness. And if we don't understand our sinfulness, then we really don't see our need for a Savior. And if we don't see our need for a Savior, then Jesus really doesn't have much value, does he? But it wasn't long after that conversation that I started to, one, see sin in my life, and two, call it that. So thankful for the Lord's ministry of reconciliation to me. <laughs> so we're here to love as we've been loved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? Anyone that is in our lives is a part of our mission field. Our job is either to encourage them to know Christ or, or to encourage them in Christ. We all need that, I know. Again, we're not responsible for saving people. That's the work of God. But we are to love people enough to warn them of the holiness and the justice and the coming judgment of an omnipotent God. At the most recent Shepherds Conference, uh, we were able to hear from a man named uh, Josiah Grauman, and he preached out of Zephaniah. Um, Maybe you've heard it. If you haven't, please go check it out. The, the message, I believe, was called Saving the Remnant. And you'll be reminded and encouraged 
to lovingly warn those in your mission field. But I want you to see this. I might just read a little section, but I want you to see this. Zephaniah is a warning. God wants people to be warned of the coming judgment in the day of Yahweh. Yeah, let me just, let me just read here. Just a few little sections. The word of Yahweh, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, no, Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, and the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely end all things from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh. I will end man and beast. I will end the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked and I will cut off man from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh. I'm going to skip ahead. Near is the great day of Yahweh. Near and coming very quickly. Oh, the sound, the day of Yahweh. In it, the mighty man cries out bitterly. A day of fury, that is. A day of fury is that day. A day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom, a day of trumpet and loud shouting against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the fury of Yahweh and all the earth will be devoured into fire of his in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete destruction indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth but remember this is a warning Zephaniah is a warning this is God being gracious. He's tasked us, with, tasked us with a ministry of reconciliation. As we sang this morning, he is a God that saves. <laughs> but we are warning people of an impending doom. And, and it's not just, there's a, I was just talking with some brothers this morning, and a lot of people apparently in the world are now teaching this <coughs> annihilation aspect that people just get destroyed and that's it that's not what the bible teaches look at look at this little section in jude now i want to remind you this is jude verse five now i want to remind you that uh, though you know all things that jesus having once saved people out of the land of egypt subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way in these gross sexual immorality and, uh, and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This is eternal punishment. We're warning people of impending doom. But remember, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, we have a gospel that is the power unto salvation. 
And we, like Paul, we've been called to preach the gospel. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are being, I'm sorry, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because of the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by doing his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's plan. We preach Christ crucified for sinners. Romans 10 says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how will they believe in him uh, whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. (laughs) Okay, so we've already said it today, but remember John 16, 8, and he when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's his job. We testify to what we've seen. He will convict. I'm sure you're like me. You're thinking about Jonah right now, right? This reminded me of Jonah, who had great theology. He he gets it. He knows who God is. But because of sinful fleshly heart, had a terrible application In Jonah, we're given a view of God's character that's so beautiful, and we're also allowed to see the sin in Jonah's heart that should cause us to examine ourselves very carefully to see if this terribly sad and prideful disposition to other sinners exists in our hearts. Now, he certainly would have felt justified. These people, the Ninevites, were wicked, they were brutal. They would dismember and decapitate and burn people alive. 
And Jonah knew all of this. He didn't want them to repent. So he ran away from the presence of God. Ha. You can't do that. It, if you haven't read Jonah, don't try this at home. Don't run away from the presence of God. You can't do it. There's nowhere to go. But, but first, let's just look at what happened with Jonah when he obeyed. And then we'll see what, what happens. The helper convicted this nation of brutal sinners who are dead in their sins. Look at Jonah 3 with me really quickly. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was ex an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I don't know if he said more than that. I don't think he'd have to. But that's, what he, that's what's reported. And it says this. Then the people of Nineveh believed God, believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that, they, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, and then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Then just a few lines. Let me stop here really fast. The, the king says, his wicked way, each may turn from his wicked way and the violence which is in his hands. The king is thinking, we need to do this. And he says it and everyone does it. Can you just imagine if our president got on TV and was like, guys, turn from your wicked way. This would be amazing. So he's done it before. Wow, we could pray for that. I think that's okay. But look, just in a few lines, we see God's character and Jonah's pride right here in Jonah chapter four. Just look at this. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Well, first, look at our God. And Jonah knew it. He said it so well. He is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. This is why we're here. This is our work. We're to tell people about that. But God's also allowed us to see into a man's heart. Jonah didn't want them to repent. He ran in the opposite direction. 
He didn't think they should be allowed to repent. What about us? Who do we think shouldn't be allowed to repent? Is it Muslims? Is it trans folk? Maybe abortion docs? Democrats? See, this is an attitude that was also seen in the prodigal's older brother who really pictures the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Do you remember in Luke 15, he says this, now the older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. And because he's received him back, uh, or he says, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, you who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This is so sad. This brother has no real love for the father. He does not love what the father loves. He's not overwhelmed by sin. He's not interested in seeing sinners repent. This is our work. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. God the Father has called us to, to himself and he's given us hope and he's given us joy and he's given us life. You remember Romans 2.4. Or do you think lightly of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? I like that. It's not saying that led you to repentance. It's continual. He leads us. When we're un unkind and intolerant and impatient, it proves that we do think lightly of that, doesn't it? We were created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand we should walk in them to be a part of his work to follow him in calling sinners you remember what he said in Matthew 9 you know the setting Pharisees see him sitting with a tax collector and he says in verse 12 but when Jesus heard this he said it's not um, well their, their question let me back up in verse 11 he says uh, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Family, 
sin and wickedness is not new. And we're not alone. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So let us join each other in being unified, intent with one purpose, in forgetting about ourselves for the sake of those in our mission fields, that we would be used by God for the good work of glorifying Jesus as a part of his work of saving all those who are his. Let me close with the quote from Charles, Charles Spurgeon. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mission field that you've placed us in. Thank you for our spouses, our children, our parents, our siblings, our employers, our employees, our co-workers, our church family, our church leaders, our extended family, our neighbors, our friends, our acquaintances, and strangers, and government authority, and even our enemies. Would you help us, God, to feel compassion and to be motivated to help those in our lives that are so thirsty and believing that the sand of the world is going to satisfy them? Help us be on guard for pride that is moved in disgust to say and do things that are hurtful because of fear. We are secure in you because of Jesus. Thank you. Let us be moved by love to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel, which is the power unto salvation, knowing that this is the work that you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long to see you. Thank you that you're gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Please, God, please be glorified in us, we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.